This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. This episode is presented by the Azoya Group, a digital commerce enabler that partners with global beauty brands and retailers to expand their business to China. Hi, I'm Charles Denton, CEO of Werner Laszlo. And for me, it's a matter of belief. The intrigue of heritage brands lies in their histories and their stories. But these can also be the downfall. Growth requires looking to the future while leveraging the past to evolve. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. Legacy can be a liability or a unique differentiator, and that distinction is often grounded in the vision of leadership. Every brand has a different history and a different story to tell, but the secret to success and longevity often lies in the culture that is created and the people that buy into the vision with the same passion as the founder or CEO. This shared commitment sets a solid foundation for growth, navigating missteps, market downturns, and yes, even global pandemics. Turning around a heritage brand is an art form that requires patience and vision, and it's certainly not for the faint of heart. Charles Denton, the chairman and CEO of Erno Laszlo, is a heritage brand whisperer who will immediately deflect his success at Moulton Brown and Erno Laszlo by crediting his team. That's true leadership. We have with us today Charles Denton, the chairman and CEO of Erno Laszlo. And Charles, I'm so happy we are finally able to figure this out. Every time we try and coordinate schedules, it's sort of like, where in the world is Charles Denton? <laughs> because yeah, well, you travel occasion, so much. <laughs> yeah, well, on this occasion, you've got me holed up in Greece, so I can't get away from you, Kelly. Well, that's good. And I wish I were in Greece. <laughs> it's not such a horrible place to be. No, it's up. lovely. They've, they've been very accommodating here. Very, very charming people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's it, and, you know, I kind of think everything happens for a reason, because I think we probably would have had a very different conversation had we had it in sort of January or December when we had it planned. It seems like a completely different world that we're living in. Um, but we'll get to that. I really wanted yeah. to start sort of just um, with a little context and background on you for people who don't know you. I know that you feel like you've told your story a million times, but you have a great story. So I would love for you to share it um, just to set sort of the foundation, kind of how you arrived in beauty, the time you spent at Moulton Brown, kind of leading up to where we are today with your acquisition of Erno Laszlo, uh, I think in 2011. I left school at quite a young age. I was uh, 17 years old. I never went to university. Uh, I, my family had its various issues. I suppose I was uh, uh, slightly troubled as a child and uh, eager to just get out there and do my own thing. Um, my first experience of business was renovating properties and uh, you know, trying to make a bit of cash and then go off traveling and then come back and do another one. And then I met uh, my first wife, and uh, she didn't really want to live with someone like that. So <laughs> she wanted him to have a proper job, I seem to remember. So um, I went to the City of London and started in finance. Uh, having not completed my 
uh, university or indeed any real education. The only place I could start was in commodity trading. And so I began there. And I was you know, doing okay, but I wasn't really enjoying the environment. This was the late 80s where uh, it was really unregulated and a lot of things that were going on around me that I didn't feel very comfortable with. And one day we were shopping in South Molton Street and uh, we went into the store called Molton Brown. And uh, I just instantly fell in love. I can't really explain how or why, you know, somebody who's working in the city would go into a this sort of Aladdin's cave of, of beauty, um, sort of this sort of feeling of Mother Earth wrapped around you. But I just got it. I understood it. I felt it. And so I started speaking to the lady behind the counter who told me the story of the founders who set it up. And, you know, the next day I called one of the founders up and said, you know, you've got an amazing brand. Um, you know, why isn't it not better known? He's a wonderful guy, Harvey. He said, well, haven't I got enough problems? Why are you calling me with this? <laughs> and so, so I said, well, maybe I can help. And uh, he said, well, come and talk to me. Yeah, we just clicked, I guess. And, and within a week, I had left the city and I was working as a marketing consultant for uh, Molten Brown. And then a year later, uh, um, late 80s, we're talking about uh, the retail recession uh, kicked in pretty badly. And... Uh, they went through a pre-pack and the new investors coming into the business asked me, would I like to stay involved? And I said, well, if I could be one of the investors, yes. Uh, and they said, how much do you want to invest? And I said, how much will you lend me? Uh, and uh, <laughs> long story short, uh, they did lend me the money to buy alongside them. And uh, there was about three or four of us uh, uh, that took the business forward. At that time, I, I knew nothing, but one of the lead investors, uh, Michael Warshaw, who became our chairman, if you like, uh, he, he, he took me on as his uh, uh, mentee. He was my mentor. Uh, and that was my university, my business university, if you like. He, he, he was a very successful businessman, had run many businesses, and he taught me everything there was to know about business. And so I worked my way through the company from the sales and marketing uh, uh, role that I started with. Later on, joint managing director, ultimately CEO, and then we uh, exited to uh, Cal Corporation in 2005. So it was a 16-year journey uh, um, in a vertically integrated business that had its own labs, manufacturing, wholesaling, retailing. We, we really were uh, um, a wonderful place to learn your craft, if you like. Uh, and I had an amazing time. And we, we pioneered many, many innovative ideas, not least uh, um, the concept of sampling premium products in hotels, which became our sort of secret to our success. And then 2005, the company, as I said, was sold. And I felt that I'd probably, I didn't feel that I could stay inside the company under the new ownership because I felt the culture was going to change. You know, once they changed my email address to the owner's uh, right. corporate <laughs> email address, and I, I was no longer Charles at Moulton Brown, uh, um, things started to feel different. Uh, and again, that, that's fine. You know, the new owners come in, they have their own visions for what they want to do with the business. So I did something very different at that point. I uh, uh, was in, a friend of mine contacted me and said, yeah, I know you've always been interested in sorting, you know, supporting kids and things. Uh, there's this role at Great Ormond Street uh, Hospital charity going to, to lead it. And they're looking for someone who's got, who can do the following seven things. And I went down the list and I thought, well, I can do six of those. The seventh one, I have no understanding of charity law, but I guess I can find someone who does. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. that was it. I joined Great Oldham Street and spent 
uh, five amazing years there, helping them restructure the, the hospital and uh, raise much needed funds and so on. I have always, I love heritage brands as well. And I know, you know, you, you speak a lot about culture and anytime, you know, we talk about sort of the success you've had with Moulton Brown and Erno Laszlo, the first thing you say is it's my team. And, you know, I think that, I think heritage brands are sort of these rare gems and for people to really sort of kind of light a new fire and make them relevant you have to have the passion for like that felt that feeling you had when you walked into the store like what was the feeling you had that made you acquire um erno laszlo well um the feeling that uh, i had when we walked into malton brown first was this sort of authentic sense of warmth it's almost as though the store wrapped itself around you and said i care about you and, and that was very powerful, particularly at th that time in the 80s where everything was a little bit bling and, and right. uh, uh, um, you know, fast moving and, and lacking any form of care. So I felt it was I was in touch with my soul a little bit more <laughs> in that environment. Uh, Erna Laszlo was, uh, uh, I mean, bear in mind, I'd been out of the industry for five years doing something completely different and had coffee, had lunch with a Malton Brown employee of mine who was working at Erna Laszlo. Uh, and she was telling me about her plans. Uh, for, and she had three brands. She had Lattes and named Sarah Rotherham. She's truly mm -hmm. an uh, inspirational uh, uh, business operator uh, and I would say visionary. Uh, and she, she was the one who took Penhaligons to where it ultimately ended up before it was acquired. Uh, so she had Penhaligons, uh, uh, Lattes and uh, uh, Laszlo. And she was talking about all the plans they had for Lattes and Penhaligons. But Anna Laszlo really wasn't discussed. And at the end of the lunch, I said, you know, this is an amazing brand. You know, I remember the queuing up in, in uh, Saks to understand what the hell was going on with this line to this, this counter, you know, what was this black soap? You know, why, why, how come it was so iconic? Uh, you know, Erna Lasley, as you know, Kelly was like the, 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 the father of modern uh, mm -hmm. beauty, if you like, or modern skincare, certainly. Uh, and his pioneering ideas sort of set the, the, the platform for, what we see today and there has not been a huge amount of innovation since then you know if you really look at his, his thinking yes there's been ingredient development but it's the same type of products layered in if you like and so i was i was thinking you know there's this powerful truth to the brand there's this this is there's this unwavering commitment to to efficacy first it was like the products have to work that's the number one thing and and there's just this extraordinary word of mouth support than this almost like cultish uh, a following for the brand uh, and i felt that you know it had been ignored as as it has been you know it's had its moment it was big in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s but now it was just waning it, it was time for it to be you know uh, sunsetted gracefully put out to, to graze if you like and i thought this is crazy because if you think about all the things that drive modern beauty today, the, the storytelling, the authenticity, uh, the word of mouth, you know, all of those were what the brand was built on. So surely there was an opportunity to just repurpose this DNA and talk about it in a, in a way that would resonate with a new consumer. And so th the thing that drew me to it was that, that, that truth, that sort of power, the power in the truth and the honesty of why the brand existed and, and, 
you know why and, and of course laszlo's commitment to really solving problems you know he his whole life was spent around uh, he was very sort of women first in an old-fashioned in an austri austro-hungarian way you know clicking his heels and bowing <laughs> himself if you like but but uh, uh, he really did champion women all of his clients talk about the way he he did his best to uplift them you know emotionally mentally if you like uh, and so all, all of that resonated with me having come from you know, a single mother family and all of those other issues so so uh, it just touched me and i felt intellectually everyone else has said it's had its day i don't believe this uh, and that became i believe there's a better way i believe there's a different way and i believe i can find it and that that's my motivation in life i always have this i believe there's a better way and that's what gets me out of bed every day. You know, how do we find the better way? Well, you know, it's very interesting because on, on one hand, it may, it's probably, you know, given the experience you had and the context you had, it would have been far easier to just start a brand from scratch. But I am like you, it's like, you know, with these heritage brands, it's like, it's almost like you have a responsibility to them when you make a commitment. And I can remember the history of Erno Laszlo that, you know, getting like discovering the black soap was a step up from the Clinique soap and I was cool, <laughs> you know, and then sort of being in the industry, the brand sort of got passed around a little, you know, and it was sort That's of true. like, oh, you know, we're going to revive it. We'll just like build this very fancy counter at Bergdorf Goodman. And so it was sort of like throwing money at a brand that really needed a little TLC. And I think heritage brands are, you know, I think sometimes people get enamored with the sexy quality of a heritage brand without realizing how much work it takes to keep them relevant. Can you talk a little bit about how you built the team and the culture from a brand that really had, you know, a little bit of, um, well, I mean, you said it, it had sort of this perception that it, its time had, had passed um, so how, how did you begin to change that? And, you know, what were some of the challenges? Because I know it was far more difficult than you even realized once you sort of got under the hood. Well, that, that's absolutely <laughs> true. Um, so uh, and far more difficult than our investors realized uh, when we got under the hood. Uh, um, so I think the, the, the first problem is the consumers, our, our loyal fans, didn't think our time had come. So they, they were very happy with the way things were. A little bit disappointed that it had been moved from owner to owner to owner and things had changed along the way. Um, the team that we inherited, they didn't think our time had come. Uh, um, so to try and uh, light a fire among, uh, under your team and under your consumers to say, look, if we don't change, and put it like this, Kelly, if we hadn't done what we did over the last few years, I'm pretty confident that uh, the company, the brand, would have been bankrupt during this period right now. I mean, there, it, you, we were 90%, 80% department stores. You know, we, we, we traded over. We were in Saks, Neiman's, Bergdorf's, all the best department stores. Uh, and, uh, you know, I took the decision to close them all. At the time, people thought I was crazy. And bear in mind, when we were making these decisions, influences hadn't really happened and and online hadn't really happened. Even Ulta and those uh, and Sephora were not sort of talked about all the time. So I had to find a team or build a team that was comfortable with change. I think that's the, the main point uh, um, that could work as a team and that was comfortable with change because one thing was for sure, we didn't know the answer. We knew it was wrong. 
we knew there was a better way, but I had no idea what that way was at that moment. Uh, um, so we, we just needed to try things, uh, constantly uh, uh, innovate, try different ways, uh, um, go down different paths. If it works, let's learn from it, do more of it. If it doesn't work, stop it, move into another direction. And I think for the first five years, as we were exiting those department stores, it was all about that, just trialing different ideas, seeing what works, which products resonate and why, uh, what, what can we say goodbye to without entirely alienating our loyal customer base, what's going to resonate with the new customer, who is the new customer? You know, A lot of our loyal customer base came into the brand when they were in their 20s. Now they're in their 50s or 40s or 50s or even the 60s, even, even older, some of them. Uh, um, so you know, how do we retell that story? in a new environment with a whole new set of tools. Uh, and so I needed a team around me who could believe that we could do this, had, had the imagination, because we're having to, at this point, we're trying to imagine what hasn't been done yet, uh, and then be comfortable with failure. You have to fail. You have to, be, you, have to, you have to embrace failure as a management team. You have to embrace failure as an investor. Uh, and otherwise, you don't innovate. Uh, and so um, the ability to embrace change and the ability to embrace failure and learn from it were probably the two most important qualities in terms of the team we built, in terms of the culture that we built. I mean, you have an amazing team and I know that you're very hands-on. I remember one of, the, one of the meetings we had, I guess it was last year, I walked in and you were like in the front doing gift bags to give away. So <laughs> I know you're very, very hands-on and you travel a lot sort of from Asia to US to sort of be very present with your teams and, and in the market. Um, you know, at what time was there an inflection point? Because during all of this, you sort of had a, a switch in investors as well, because, you know, the 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 thing about heritage brands and sort of turning them around is it's, very rarely a three to five year horizon. Like it's sort of a, a you need a longer term vision. Um, and, you know, at some point there was sort of this, this tipping point where, you know, you were, you were reached newer consumers, but I think more importantly, the industry started looking at the brand in a different way. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I mean, I, I think I made some fundamental mistakes uh, when I look back. Uh, one of the mistakes I made was committing to this concept of growing every year. So if you look back to 2011, every single year up until today, we have grown as a business. Now, if you imagine having to extricate yourself from a, from a channel and show growth at the same time uh, and, and reinvent yourself at the same time without, without space, if you like, to to allow your revenues to decline for a period or something like that, uh, made it very challenging. And, and that actually was one of the reasons that it stretched out the timeline. Uh, ah. um, what we could have done in maybe two or three years, we did in six or seven years because we had to do it in a more methodical, measured way. And of course, we had to manage everything within a, a limited amount of cash. You know, the, it wasn't an unlimited, it wasn't as though we were owned by a strategic uh, um, with you know, unlimited funds that just said, 
this is a trophy asset, right. make it what it should be. Uh, we had to grow revenue every year and we had to improve our profitability uh, at the same time. So I think the really aha moment that then later became the inflection point was whilst we were tinkering with the changes, what do we need to do here and there with the range and the price point and the architecture and everything we, we went through, as you can imagine, uh, um, I recognized that the brand had a very strong and growing following amongst the Asian consumer. And this was very evident in Canada, uh, where we, were tr um, we had uh, counters in Holt Renfrew, which we still have today. It's one area that we didn't change. You know, we, we kept our counters in Holt Renfrew and continued to grow them. Uh, and we're a top five brand in Holt Renfrew. And so the question was, why is this resonating so well with the Asian consumer in Canada? Uh, and we investigated that and realized that it was a strong connection with our uh, uh, previous distributor who had been in Hong Kong and they, they, the products really worked for this customer and the word of mouth uh, uh, just was, was stronger and stronger. And so the inflection point for us was recognizing the opportunity in China uh, and saying, okay, from this platform in Canada, reinforced with a platform in Hong Kong, can we enter China? You know, what can we, can we really think about China as our growth engine? Uh, and we you know, did a couple of steps that we pointed the distributor in the first instance, proved the model at a sort of low cost level of investment. We set up our own operations in Shanghai. And I now have a team of uh, 30 brilliant uh, uh, operators uh, running that business. Well, you know, and that kind of brings us to sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, kind of an, an interesting point. You know, you have really been dealing with kind of the, the uncertainty in the world since last fall, because when we spoke last fall, you know, you had a very nice business in Hong Kong that was kind of decimated by the political unrest. You doubled down in China on Singles Day and had like when when I was writing that article, the case study we did together, I literally like got goosebumps and adrenaline, like imagining sort of, I kind of imagined it with like a bunch of scre TV screens in a war room, like running it singles day. It was a little day. like NASDAQ. It really was. <laughs> the trade was fantastic. Um, you know, but you've really sort of been dealing with uncertainty in the business since last fall. The political unrest, then COVID in China, sort of the beginning of the year, um, and then sort of the pandemic sort of turned into sort of a, a global um, a, a global situation. Um, and then in the U.S. market, we have this confluence now of COVID, sort of mm. economic issues, and sort of mm. this very cultural unrest. Mm. You know, so mm. you mm. have you've sort of. I guess my, my question is, how, how have you navigated this as a business? And, yep. you know, perhaps we can start with the fact that there were rumors floating around um, that there was talks of a sale. And it was, it's very interesting because at the beginning of the year, also sort of those brands that were being acquired were kind of those high flying venture backed unicorn billionaire or uh, billion dollar brands and sort of the, the legacy brands that were sort of slow, steady, profitable, weren't the sexiest acquisition targets. So it's very interesting. Fast forward now, people have sort of changed their, their, um, what they're looking for. Now, all of a sudden, businesses like Erno Laszlo that have been around and proven and profitable are far sexier. <laughs> yeah, I think um, that's true. That's, but so, I think that, that's certainly how our investors looked at the situation. So, I mean, you raised a, a lot of it, really interesting points there. Uh, um, 
let's deal with the, the, the navigation issue. I think to, to some extent, everything we just discussed at the beginning about the culture of the organization set us up very well for this, this period. I mean, we had already begun our pivot to online. So from a model point of view, we were well structured uh, uh, when in North America, you know, our bricks and mortar has closed their doors. And not only did they close their doors, Kelly, they said, uh, we're canceling all our orders, even the, the future orders for different anniversary events, etc., which we had committed to, as you can imagine. And not only that, they said, and uh, we need time to pay your bills. We can't afford to pay you right now. Now, we're a small company, and these are big, large organizations. And so, um, fortunately... Uh, because we had already pivoted to more of an online model uh, and because we had this China growth story running successfully, we were able to navigate through that. Uh, um, and, you know, I'm pleased to say that, uh, um, you know, we, we uh, I don't want to crow because a lot of brands and a lot of companies are having very tough times. And I'm very empathetic of that. And, you know, I, I, I would hate to be in some of their shoes with some of the difficult decisions they're they're taking. But in our case, uh, um, we beat our first half budget. So wow. if you think about it, we budgeted last year, it's October time, with no awareness of what was going to happen in the pandemic. And we achieved, uh, um, not only did we beat our revenue targets, we also beat our EBITDA targets. So um, I was delighted with that performance. How did we get there? Well, we, we did exactly what we did. Uh, um, before uh, the, the, the beginning of the, or towards the end of the year, as, as Hong Kong was struggling, we doubled down further on China. So we accelerated our China plan. We accelerated our pivot to online in North America. People first. So how do we put their safety first? We closed our offices. We clo I think we were the first brand probably to close our offices in New York. Well, I know you, uh, were, you were very vocal on LinkedIn telling people you need to take this seriously. Um, and sort of sharing your experience of closing your office in New York. And I think it was important because, well, I mean, still in the U.S., people are not taking it seriously. But I know that, that yeah. your people matter to you, and, and, and that was important. Yeah, I mean, people first is, is – I always believe the profits follow the people. So you put people first, the profits will take care of themselves, if you like. Uh, um, we had the advantage of seeing what happened in China. So I, you know, I'm in daily contact with my office in Shanghai. We had to close that. Everybody was locked down. We saw what happened there and how they managed it. I assumed that the American government was going to handle the problem in a similar way, uh, and not just the American government, European governments and so on. I was a little surprised by the um, lack of direction, if you like, and the, and the, and the sort of confusion that was going on at the time. Hence, I don't normally use LinkedIn as a platform, but I was just saying to everybody, in, in my opinion, uh, and also because I had a few contacts back at the hospital where I was working, which I was in touch with, you know, everyone was telling me this is very serious. Uh, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. This is what I was told. And in America, not just worldwide, in America. Uh, and so, you know, that scared me. That scared me a lot. So I thought, well, what can we do? You either make sure they can access great medical care or you keep them as safe as you possibly can, um, ideally both. But obviously the medical institutions were overwhelmed, you know, unprepared and overwhelmed. So we just closed the office in February. And right now, uh, uh, the latest information for, my, for our team is that we will not open until at least 1st of June next year. 
and I may push that out even further. Uh, um, you know, when the when the likes of Google uh, take that same decision, they have a lot more intel than we do. Yeah. So uh, um, we certainly follow that. But also from a point from a point of view of people, the people my team doesn't want to be uh, uh, uncomfortable traveling to the office. And the other point I would make is that uh, our productivity is great. You know, we are. We already had this thing called work from home Wednesdays. So we always closed the office on Wednesdays and everybody had to work from home to keep more of a work-life balance. And, and so you could say we were set up for work from home. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd already road tested it and it went very, very well. So people first closed the office. Next thing was supply chain mitigation. Obviously, we had issues with our factories in, in America closing. We had issues with uh, 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 component suppliers uh, uh, closing, etc. I had an, I have an extraordinary operations team. Uh, and uh, we actually went out of inventory, I think, on four non, non-popular items, you know, low-level SKUs. Mm-hmm. They kept the entire supply chain up and running and kept us in, in, in inventory, which is extremely important because we were seeing increased revenues. It wasn't that our problem was going to be the supply chain, not the generation of revenue, because our pivot to online was succeeding and China would double down and was moving faster. So, you know, fast forward, we're now a virtual team. Uh, uh, the culture has, I think, sustained us. Uh, uh, the way that we work together has sustained us. We're very comfortable with that. Uh, and uh, our model is proving uh, uh, very popular. And there is one point you just mentioned also about the sort of sense of there's a nostalgia thing creeping mm-hmm. in as well. The tried and tested, the things you trust. I, I, we've reconnected with more uh, uh, lapsed Erno Laszlo customers in the last six months and I have connected with in the last five years. It's extraordinary. Well, you also had um, a, a partnership with the Makeup Museum, which was supposed to the mm. launch. And so there was, the also, yeah, there was also this very cool sort of public unveiling of the Erno Laszlo archives, which I, I love that stuff. So it, it's, I mean, it didn't really pan out very well for the makeup museum because obviously they weren't able to open, but they did an interesting digital pivot as well. Yeah. So we partnered with uh, Doreen on that. Uh, um, and she, she said to our team, uh, you know, what, what have you got in the archives that we can, if you like, share. Uh, and so we, we um, retrieved uh, Marilyn's prescription that was, you know, typed up in Dr. Laszlo's office from him. And, and also the same for uh, Jackie, uh, Kennedy or Jackie O, and, and uh, you know these these stories. Uh, I think people really resonated with. Uh, uh, again, they're, they're, you know they're, they're truthful, they're authentic, and they're very insightful uh, uh, um, in terms of some of the innovation and the pioneering thinking. You know, he was advocating drinking a glass of red wine for its antioxidant value, for example, fifty years ago. And you know, we, we talk about it today as though it's almost like new news. So yeah, they, they, as you rightly say that. That um, that started to make our history, our heritage, modern in a way and relevant in a way. Uh, we don't really lead with it, but this moment was an opportunity to lead with it. Mm-hmm. And what it led us to uh, to do was actually bring back um, one of its beauty products, Shake It. Uh, and um, I kid you not, it's the most successful product launch we've had ever. Really? Ever. That's amazing. We sold in probably six weeks what we would normally sell in six, seven months. Well, and you you have effectively, I I think, you know, when you inherited the brand, I think the average age of the consumer was around 50, right? 
55. 55. Okay, 55. So older than and um and now it is 30 31 or early 30s. Yeah, it's slightly younger in China, so our core uh consumer is between 24 and 28 probably in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh in uh, North America, I would say she's uh between 30 and 35 on, on average. But we still uh, um we draw if it's very interesting looking at our data in the last uh, um, 12 months, uh, uh, we have successfully recruited uh, new fans, if you like, in every band from 18 uh, uh, up to 80. Uh, uh, and obviously there's spikes in the middle, mm-hmm. so we're more successful in that uh, 25 to 45 area. Uh, um, but we step, we recruit right across uh, because, you know, uh, we don't really, we're not really ageist in how we approach uh, um, our segmentation. We talk about what is the concern you have and the problem you're trying to solve, and we probably have the product that that, that meets or resolves that issue for you. It doesn't matter what age you are. You know, you might be talking about acne when you're 18 or or, or 60. You know, uh, hormonal acne it takes it has many forms. For example, and anti-aging today. You know, people are thinking about. Uh, delaying age or having a more healthy, natural, non-makeup appearance uh, at all ages. It's not that you're now waiting till your 50s to say, oh, this is now very serious. I think people in their 20s are just as uh, concerned with investing in, in products that are going to give them sort of a sustainable, useful appearance. And now, here's our Trend Minute, brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. I'm Ashley Edwards, and this is your Trend Minute. So let's talk new brand creation. New brand creation has definitely been on my mind. It's not just small and indie brands anymore. I think what's been interesting is seeing how conglomerates and manufacturers like Procter & Gamble and Unilever and L'Oreal have launched new brands of their own. And they have, you know, internal incubators. They've got entrepreneurial minded marketers tasked with creating the next billion dollar brand and they're doing it. Um, So it's been very interesting to see sort of how the big players are fighting back. Um, And it's a very exciting time to be, you know, not just in beauty, but in CPG in general. I think the things that I'm going to be looking for in 2020 and 2020 and beyond are the way that these dynamics are going to continue to evolve, right? I think it's going to be interesting to see how some of these small indie brands are going to attempt to grow and potentially flounder in the way that Warby Parker-esque brands like Casper have struggled from an IPO and a market valuation standpoint. So I've, I've heard a lot about you know this, this idea of a brand bubble or a beauty bubble, um, and is that a thing? And is that going to be something that we see uh, this year? I think that it will be. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how legacy brands like Nice and Easy and CoverGirl and all of these, so Revlon, all of these uh, established brands, how they decide to fight back for their share in terms of of storytelling and legacy and expertise and history and you know, I do think that there are, is room in the world for legacy brands and indie brands. I think it's really interesting to think about these new brand incubators like Syllable or even 
next-gen CPG companies like Walker and Company that Procter just acquired, speaking to the needs of African-American consumers. So I think that tomorrow's CPG and beauty companies are going to look very different than they look today. Um, But I don't think that legacy brands are going anywhere. So that's sort of what I'm keeping my eye on uh, in 2020 and beyond is how the dynamics of the beauty and the CPG business continue to take shape, continue to evolve, and again, continue to get a lot more interesting. That's your Trend Minute. I'm Ashley Edwards. I'm a consultant with LPK in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'll talk to you next time. This podcast is sponsored by Azoya Group a digital commerce enabler that partners with global beauty brands and retailers to expand their business to China. Azoya has worked with top cosmetic companies such as Feel Unique and Pixie to expand on channels such as Tmall and WeChat and is responsible for everything from e-commerce operations to digital marketing, managed logistics, IT integration, and customer service. If you're interested in entering the China retail market, check out Azoya's website, azoyagroup.com. That's A-Z-O-Y-A-G-R-O-U-P.com. You know, Charles, everybody's business shifted because of the shutdown of brick-and-mortar retail. Um, And even though you've seen sort of... um, a success, you know, were there changes you had to make? I mean, did you have to furlough people? You know, were, you know, did you have to make those kind of hard decisions, sort of people related? Yeah. So this is a, a big topic for, for me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have several arguments on a weekly basis <laughs> around this with, <laughs> with, you know, colleagues in, in other businesses. There's a short termism that, that can creep into situations like this where people say, oh, to protect the bottom line, I had to fire. of my workforce, 50% of my workforce. I spoke to someone the other day who's 85, 90% of their workforce they've had to let go, not just furlough, but fire. Uh, And uh, if I had to give up one or two or even $3 million worth of profits just to keep a team, I would. This idea of just preserving your profits for a year or two, you know, these, these people, they've got families and it's not it's not just that you can oh fire them and they can go and get another job at this moment in time there is very little chance or there's a a limited likelihood that they can find other employment so any decisions you take just to to you know preserve your profits uh over the short term and and the crazy thing about this uh, uh kelly is that you know a year from now or 18 months from now then there's this, this mad rush to rehire and you've yeah. lost all of that talent all of the time invested in them developing them the culture that they helped foster and you you uh, succeed with uh, uh you've lost that and then you have to start all over again so uh, um we've been totally and uh, have always been totally against this this short-term approach um that said i did let some people go um, but I let them go for a different reason. I let them go not to preserve profits, but I let them go because we were evolving to this new model and they were no longer relevant to the new model. And, and so uh, um, I was, uh, uh, um, if you like, we, I accelerated that, that, that plan, but it, it wasn't a short-term uh, decision to preserve profits. It was a longer-term strategy and it was 
I think every single person knew it was going to happen sooner or, or rather later. I delayed it as long as I could and helped as best we could, and we gave the best possible severance we could to, rec to recognize their personal circumstances. Um, but I didn't let one single person go, and we didn't furlough anyone in the States uh, um, because you know, we have the cash, first of all. Uh, and secondly, uh, um, as I said before, to, to gain short-term profit for, for their pain and then longer-term then have to rush around to try and find the talent doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's so much invested in sort of getting the right people. Um, Absolutely. You, I guess some businesses, you know, it's a matter of keeping the doors open or not, but... Um, that's know, a different matter. I mean, it's if you're a totally in survival mode, that's yeah. a different matter. But if you are, oh, I need to keep my investors happy and maintain my profitability... I'd sit in front of them and say, look, this, guy, this year and even maybe even next year, we're going to have a, 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 a lower level of performance. But I'm keeping my talent. I'm keeping my team. And when we come out of it, they will remember that. They will you know, be even more loyal, even more passionate, even more supportive. I mean, absolutely. I think there's, you know, two different approaches to business. There's the the one where it's just bottom line and revenues and return for investors. And the other one is focusing on, you know, all the stakeholders in the business um, and they're fundamentally different because I think some businesses saw this as an opportunity to, to sort of make cuts that may have been um, looked down on or, or in a different context. And now it was an opportunity to sort of slash, slash, slash to increase profits, which, you know, hopefully I think I'm hoping that way of thinking is becoming antiquated because I think in, in this period of time, you know, where government, at least in the U.S., has failed us in so many ways, brands and, and business owners are really stepping in to fill the gap. And we see sort of this idea of B Corps and the idea of really brands having a responsibility, you know, that's larger than just profits and, and shareholders. And I hope that that's the way forward. Um, but it requires sort of leaders like you to have that, to have that look. No, really. Yeah. I know you're, you, you always sort of d dismiss that, but you know, it really takes value and a commitment to people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, Kelly, that if you go back over history, a lot of the most successful organizations, companies and so on, family businesses were built with those values. Uh, um, perhaps, you know, the, 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 the the driver of those businesses, perhaps in the past, was you know, creating the best possible product, or, or you know, nurturing our consumers, or you know, creating a, 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 a wonderful work environment for for our employees because we treat them as family, etc. Some of those things perhaps have waned in favour of profitability and, and performance, and you know, big big investors. Uh, having their their needs, there's a balance that's required. I mean, look, there's there's no doubt that there are a lot of companies that were that were past their sell by date uh, entering the pandemic, you know, and you're seeing them washed up on the shores of the pandemic <laughs> because they should never have been a, a, afloat. You know, they should have oh. they they were they were held up by cheap finance or whatever else. There's uh, a bit and, of beauty Darwinism happening. <laughs> well, it's exactly <laughs> and absolutely right because. Uh, in many ways, it was a false economy, uh, and that's not healthy for competition and, and not healthy for growth. Uh, and those who were unable to innovate or failed to innovate, you know, th th it's just accelerated their demise. So, you know, 
I don't think you can criticize that. It's just what it is. And there's some things that just change and you can't innovate. You know, it's difficult. Uh, but I think there is definitely an element of you know, short-term cost-cutting just to maintain your bottom line. And that's not driven by survival. It's driven by satisfying the powers that be. And I think that's a little bit sad, uh, to be honest. Because, and, and, a, and again, probably a false economy because you yeah. end up... Uh, uh, as I said, losing all of that valuable resource. Uh, certainly from our point of view, we, we, we have certainly accelerated a number of initiatives that I cannot deny, uh, um, but they were, they, they're motivated by improving the business to be a better model for the future rather than you know, short-term profitability. And, you know, in, in the midst of all of this, as, you know, um, you know, we have the dealing with the pandemic, um, dealing with sort of the, the economic um, implications of that. You know, in yes. the U.S., we had this Black Lives Matter um, yes. movement happening, which is culturally profound, long overdue. Um, but it's almost, I think, for brands created this perfect storm, you know, dealing with the pandemic and financial is almost one sort of mindset. We're mm. dealing with sort of something that is is cultural, um, requires hard conversations, awkward conversations. Mm. Um, you know, it is it requires almost a completely different skill set and to have mm. to manage both of them at the same time. You know, I, I often think about it and I'm like, I'm happy to be sitting this one out and not owning mm. a brand. Mm. Mm. It's a very it's a very interesting moment, isn't it? You know, I, I my belief is that um, the Black Lives Matter movement would have been drowned out by the voices of the pandemic if it wasn't impacting that community as badly as it did. Mm -hmm. That was the catalyst, if you like. Yes, we saw the awful images on TV, but behind that, there was clear evidence in all of the reports that this community uh, was being hardest hit by the pandemic. Uh, uh, more people were getting sick, more people were dying, as a, a, in, a, for, for, from a, as a ratio, if you like. Uh, and so, you know, the pandemic gave it even more fuel. Uh, so you had these awful images of pre, uh, police brutality. You had these images of, you know, white Americans using their power as a white person to potentially inflict damage uh, on, a, on a black person. Uh, and, and then you had the backdrop of, and look at the pandemic. Look how we're how we're we're dying here. We're dying in the streets, if you like. And so all of that came together. And and uh, I agree. It's it. There was. There, it's a very difficult time to think about how how you navigate it. I come back to culture. Uh, um, if inside your organisation you're about your team, then you listen to your team. Uh, and uh, our approach was that you know we held a, a, a group wide meeting and we divided the organisation up into four groups. And we said, okay, look, we have a lot to learn about this ourselves. We haven't been great at uh, attracting uh, uh, African Americans in, in particular. We've we've got uh, uh, um, you know a very diverse group of employees, but in, as it relates to Black Americans, uh, um, you know we have attracted a few, and we haven't held on to them as well as we might. And I, I and I don't understand why. And so let's find out. You know, let's all take this out these four groups, let's ask ourselves, 
How do we look from the outside? How do we behave on the inside? What can we do differently? What can we do better? And the whole of my team uh, came back with what has now become a mandate uh, of 20 different actions that we're taking. Uh, and that's been divided up across our organization and across the timeline. Uh, and it will lead to long-term change inside our organization for the better. Uh, and also, I think, will allow us to use our platform to better inform, better educate others on, on this extremely important topic. You know, we've talked a lot about sort of, you know, the difficulty of this time, but I don't know about you. I also, I also think during times of crisis, there's also amazing, amazing opportunity that presents I itself. I think I've also been sort of blown away by the creativity of Absolutely. people. Um, I have been sort of humbled by how, especially on the professional side of the beauty industry, they immediately stopped everything and showed up for their own and, and took care of salons and individual stylists. So, you know, I think that, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult time. And I think that we have a difficult time ahead of us, but I also am really optimistic about it as well. How do you think the pandemic and I suppose, you know, the Black Lives Matter moment is going to change the beauty industry, both sort of from a customer perspective, but also sort of how, how businesses operate. Um, so I think the pandemic will change our behaviors and the awareness around Black Lives Matter will change perhaps how we think. Uh, um, there's, there's no doubt that the pandemic, I mean, take our organization, that, that even when we reopen in, in if it's in June, uh, we will not go back to uh, you know, a nine to five, five day a week type model. Uh, a lot of my team, like many other companies in New York, are now working from their family home in yeah. Nebraska or wherever else. You know, they, I've told them uh, and uh, as an as executive team, we've said, look, provided you get the job done, we don't mind where you want to work. Um, so I think that will carry forward. I mean, I mean, that's a bit of a bad thing because you can say, well, you know, the heart and soul of New York's being ripped out a little bit as everyone's disappearing. But I think, you know, New York's New York, it will bounce back in some form or other. Uh, but definitely a way of working will be different. The, the, the balance that's come to your life, the, the, the sort of re-evaluation uh, uh, of what's important uh, I think people are spending time with their kids that they perhaps haven't had a chance to do or with their loved ones or friends or, or you know, visiting places. I think taking up, you know, studies and so on. There's all sorts of things that have changed, uh, yeah. um, uh, you know, who we are. And I think those behaviors will carry on. Obviously, the, the reports around beauty are suggesting that you know, skincare is, is accelerating, uh, essentials. Uh, um, I think that it's definitely, from, from our point of view, uh, um, we're seeing there's this uh, increase in, in investment in you know, quality skincare and a decrease uh, investment in, in uh, color. Uh, um, but, you know, that, that, that may easily reverse itself at some point soon. Yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, I think those things will happen. And Black Lives Matter, I think, you know, we, we it's, it's interesting when you talk to um, successful black Americans, they have recognized that things have changed a lot. You know, there is definitely, a, 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 there has been huge success 
it's it's wrong to say it's a disaster, nothing's changed. There has been lots of success. There's been a lot of people who have succeeded in their careers, their lives, and so on. And, you know, you see a lot of them on LinkedIn now saying, you know, I bet you didn't realize I was a, a NASA scientist, you know, and there he is in a T-shirt looking like some person you might avoid on the street. You know, that's the whole point. You know, your mm -hmm. preconceived ideas would have you behave differently towards these people. Uh, um, but I think what's happened really quite excitingly is it's going to get a, an uplift, you know, an acceleration. It's going to be the change will now be accelerated to the point that it, so it's like, almost like it's going to be thrust out of out of gravity and uh, into a new place. And I think that's going to be very exciting. Um, we have some really interesting initiatives that we're planning uh, um, top down, bottom up uh, to to better engage. And I'm sure there are thousands of companies like us thinking the same way, planning the same things. And this will have a huge impact. Across, not just across America. I mean, Kelly, I think when, when the movement took off, it took off all over the world. Yeah. You know, that was so, everyone, the fire was lit everywhere because the same problems are in England and in France and Germany. You know, all of these older economies have issues with immigration and integration and so on. And, you know, coming back to my, there must be a better way, I'm hopeful because I do believe that we will find a better way. And I've worked, if you work together, of course, you sometimes take three steps back. You sometimes get slapped in the face. You sometimes, you have to wait a decade. You know, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it gets there eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So just in closing, I have, we sort of asked this question of everyone, but, you know, I think given sort of your history and, and success at sort of turning around and, and building very successful businesses, but very sort of rich cultures and fantastic teams. Um, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that, you know, this is the first time, sort of young entrepreneurs, where this is the first time they've dealt with a crisis. More senior people, you know, we've gone through 9-11, we've gone through sort of the recession. This yeah. is very different. I mean, mm. this is sort of gener a, a generational um a moment that is unlike anything we've ever experienced. But I think when you go through and navigate rough patches, at least you you have that sort of experience to lean on. But there are a lot of young entrepreneurs that this is sort of their, their, their first big crisis and it's mm. a doozy. What one piece of advice would you give them? Mm. Uh, um, I mean, first of all, let's acknowledge that uh, um, none of us really, uh, uh, you can divide your, the world into two halves, those that have some flexibility to navigate and those that have no choice. Yeah. You know, if you're in a situation, you might be the best chef or the best restaurateur ever, but if you're banned from operating, you're banned from operating. Yeah. End of story. Uh, and it's hard to navigate when that happens to you. Uh, um, I think the, it's, it's, not, it's not so much advice, it's just the, the thing that has sustained me uh, as two things probably. Belief, belief, a belief system. I think everyone has to have a belief system. Uh, um, and my belief system is this idea that there is always a better way. I mean, you can flip that, flip that, and say I'm never good enough, or it's never good enough, which is part of the truth. Uh, um, but there's always a better way, and I'm motivated by the, the the pursuit of that better way in everything I do in my life, whether it's how I bring up my kids through to how I run an organization. I think you've got to always believe there is a better way and and pursue it and almost disrupt yourself in doing so. As soon as you get somewhere, 
you know, you almost have to say, okay, that's not good enough now because anyone else can get there. Let's disrupt and move forward again to the next better way. And the other thing I best, I suppose you add into that is imagination. So if you can have this idea that there is a better way and be motivated by this concept in whatever you do in your life uh, uh, and then have the imagination uh, uh, to imagine what might be because you don't know necessarily uh, uh, where you want to get to. You know there's somewhere better, but you don't know necessarily exactly where it is. So you have to sort of imagine what might be. And then somehow your mind connects, creates a pathway. You know, so you've got this belief system, which is the fuel and the energy and the determination. And you've got the imagination, which is the sort of the moonshot. It says, oh, OK, so it's somewhere over there. And then your mind helps you find the path. I mean, I love these businesses that are having sort of these clean clean sheet strategy mm. sessions where mm. they're sort of opening everything up to, mm. you know, to conversations yeah, of if, if we could start over, what if? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there is sort of this, this moment that it almost, it allows you to rethink your business because yeah. nothing's the same anymore. Yeah. It's never going back to that. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the great thing about America uh, and, you know, people criticize America. Uh, um, I'm a, a champion of America, even, you know, I think every, every, we all have our faults. But the great thing about America is it accepts failure, embraces failure. You can try something, fall on your face. If you pick yourself up, dust yourself off and try again, you've got a, you've got a, a, a cheerleaders around you. Society, in many ways, yeah. is a cheerleader uh, sort of philosophy that says you can do this. Uh, and that's, I think, very encouraging. And America will go through this like any other country is going through this, but it probably will bounce back faster. It will probably bounce back in a fresh and newer way. And in some ways, America is a little bit like a heritage brand. You know, it yes. needed to change. Uh, and if you look at the values that America were built on, no different to the values that Erna Laszlo were built on, they've sort of been lost along the way. And I think as America bounces back and refreshes itself as a, as a brand and brand of the future, uh, a model of the future, in so doing, it will probably embrace once more those values upon which it was built so successfully yeah. and upon which people, you know, the reasons people aspire to be part of America and, and look to America for leadership. You know, I think we've swung the pendulum so far away from those values that it will swing I think probably a long way back and a lot of people will be reminded why they are proud, not to say I'm proud to be American, but why they actually truly feel proud to be American. Yeah. I think it's a very exciting time from yeah. that point of view. I think it's a very interesting lens to sort of look through, uh, look at the current situation as a heritage brand. I, I only hope that we find that benevolent leader that loves the country and makes the pendulum swing in the right direction. Well, he's got to start with the team or she's got to start <laughs> Ex with the team. You know, get exactly. the right team and anything's possible in America. Exactly. Well, Charles, I am so happy we finally got to catch up. And I really look forward to the time when we can be in person and have a drink together. No idea when that's going to happen, but no. it will. Um, so Definitely. thank you for uh, the time today and the, the great conversation. I know it's, it's sort of... Um, 
going into this, you know, I really love the fact that you're always sort of very honest and open about the the business and very transparent. And I think, you know, not a lot of people want to talk about kind of the bad stuff that's going on in their, their business right now or the difficult choices. So thank you for having kind of that conversation, because I think it will help a lot of people sort of navigate this difficult time. So uh, I, thank I, you I, for all that. Well, thank, thank you for the opportunity. I've always believed that there's nothing more powerful than than truth and you just got to own it you know yeah. it may, might not be the most pleasant thing but if you own it then you know no one can ever undermine you wow thank you charles and i look forward to seeing you soon likewise thanks okay. kelly for charles it's a matter of belief the North Star he creates is the belief in the DNA of the brand, what it stands for, the potential of the business, and the ability of his team to make it happen. For him, of course, success is important, but so is creating a culture where it's okay to fail. The beauty category has never been more crowded and the retail landscape more complicated. And one might argue launching a new brand is infinitely easier than resurrecting a 90-year-old skincare brand. Heritage brands, by their very nature, are the vision of some founder who set out to accomplish something. And if it was noble and important, then it remains unfinished business that deserves attention. Continuing a legacy is like performing brand surgery. It requires taking into account every part of the living, breathing entity from its people and loyal consumers through the positioning and products, everything must be weighted and either retained or discarded. Not so long ago, the industry was chasing the shiny new venture-backed beauty brands with lots of buzz, limited track records, and sky-high valuations. Fast forward to our post-COVID world, all of a sudden legacy brands are being given a second look. Customers are seeking real experts, Retailers are looking to mitigate risk with brands that have proven track records, and investors shifted focus from venture-fueled growth to profitability. Heritage brands have something to say in the future of beauty. They have a leg up on startups because collective memories are long and authenticity is a powerful currency. Erno Laszlo is one of those businesses. Over the past nine years, Charles and his team have turned the brand around in an environment that has been dynamic and unpredictable. They've shaken off the industry perception of a brand that's past its prime. Financially, it's profitable and growing, even through COVID. And Erno Laszlo is innovating and relevant. So in the end, it's a matter of belief. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. I'm Charles Denton. What matters to me is belief. Belief that there is a better way. And that is, if you like, what motivates me to uh, uh, get out of bed every day uh, and to pursue this better way in whatever career one has, role one plays in society. Uh, um, this pursuing the better way is extremely motivating. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media 
at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.